Welcome, one and all, to Vision on Sound here on Fab Radio International with me, Martin Holmes. This week, the Vision on Sound tombola of regular co-hosts has once again delivered Sandy McGregor from its mysterious inner recesses. Sandy's always welcome, especially as he's been very busy this year putting intercontinental technical problems to bed as a citizen of the great big wide world, and we're lucky to be able to drag him back to this small corner to talk about old telly with us here in the Fab Radio International TARDIS. This week, because he's been a bit of a fan of the show since he first saw it a couple of decades or more ago, Sandy is here to talk about Homicide, Life on the Street, which is a rather iconic and stylish American cop show from the 1990s and set in Baltimore, which ran on NBC for seven seasons from 1993 to 1999, clocking up 122 episodes, as well as crossing over with several other high-profile series like Law and Order, Chicago Hope and Saint Elsewhere, creating a strange television universe which all of these shows shared. Featuring an astonishing cast of character actors, the series was created by Paul Atanasio and based upon the book Homicide, A Year on the Killing Streets by David Simon. Several high-profile directors such as Barry Levinson, Martin Campbell and Catherine Bigelow worked on the show, which also attracted a huge list of high-profile guest stars including Robin Williams, John Waters, Steve Buscemi, Lily Tomlin, Jerry Stiller and J.K. Simmons. Such was its reputation for quality. And its often cinema verite style was groundbreaking in many ways and of course was the television gateway for a whole list of now iconic series including The Corner and The Wire from the pen of David Simon. So let's wipe down the whiteboard, check that the box is empty, crank up our time engines and head back to that curiously bleak world of Baltimore back in January 1993 and hope that we don't end up with our case becoming a notorious red ball. Hello, Sandy. How are you doing? Hello, Martin. What's happening? <laughs> what's happening? Well, I, I really think I should should ask you what's what's actually <laughs> happening because I mean I, I'm just sat here doing this nonsense all the time. But uh, I know you're you've not been around. I should say welcome back. Really, oh yes, I? I've I've been I've been missing it. I've, certainly, I've been missing oh, this. Yeah, you know. uh, yes, earning a crust. Earning a crust. <laughs> yes, working not working for the Yankee dollar. Working as a skid yeah. sang. It's a uh, working for the Australian dollar. They are, they are paying me in sterling, so there you go. Oh, there we go. Well, in that case, I will cross-examine you deeply <laughs> about Australian television. Oh, no, you can't, you're not actually spending all your time I'm not, I'm not actually in Australia, no. It's uh, <laughs> looking outside. It looks very much like uh, right. March, uh, very early spring in Stockport outside oh, as we record this. So what have you been watching? I've been watching... Over, over, a, over a number of years, mm-hmm. uh, we're just going to come back and have a little, uh, I thought, a little chat about Homicide, Life on the Street. Homicide, Life on the Street. Yeah, that's one of my favourites, you know. Yes, it it's, is. It sort of ran parallel to NYPD Blue, which was another one of my favourites. But, yeah. um, mm-hmm. but uh, never really got 
the traction down. I mean, I know it ran for what seven seven, seven, seven seasons, one hundred and twenty-two episodes, one hundred and twenty-two of them. Uh, yeah, but for some reason, it always felt that it was like the, the poor relation. It didn't really get the you know, you've got NYPD Blue being this mainstream main channel twelve-year behemoth, and yeah. then mm-hmm. and and you've got uh, Homicide Life on the Street doing a very good work, yeah. sort of quietly. Without drawing masses of attention, yeah, to and it, it got kind of it got shuffled around, didn't it? Mm. You know, it never, it was never a kind of a, a flagship program that you knew it's like it's going to be on this time on a, mm. uh, you know, it's ten o'clock on a Monday night on Channel Four. Mm. You know, it's the new season of uh, of Homicide, and it would yeah. occupy your uh, your attention for six months. You know, twenty one episodes. Wasn't the first series something like? There's only about four of them. Or no, it's a second. It's a second series. Second yeah. series, right? Yeah, the first season uh, is about twelve. Right. I think. Which is fairly standard right. these days. Sort of half season, uh, yeah. mid-season replacement kind of thing. And then, <laughs> then four in the second season. Now the only, I think that's the only series on American television that's been renewed for as, as few as episodes of si- as Seinfeld was. <laughs> <laughs> But they both went on to later greater successes. Yeah. But there were mm-hmm. there was a lot of doubt about them, wasn't there? The yeah. thing I remember most about Homicide coming on the telly over here mm. was the, they made a big deal of uh, Robin Williams. Yes, Robin Williams and his star appearance. I think it was gonna, it was struggling a bit. Mm. Uh, you know, it was trying to find its feet. And mm. Robert, uh, Robin Williams, not Robert Williams. That's mm. not the Incredible String Band. <laughs> <laughs> Was that Robin Williams? I don't know. Anyway, Robin Williams uh, made quite a high-profile uh, guest appearance. Yes, in uh, in one of the the episodes. Well, the early seasons, wasn't it? it wasn't it yes, wasn't long into the run. No, and that certainly seemed to bring a bit of a you know rightful attention to mm. the series. And uh, uh, possibly... af- af- after that, you know, it was it was kind of twenty episodes a season. It's possibly one of the earliest uh, moments when, I mean, I know, obviously, uh, Yafet uh, Koto was a film actor, uh, mm. but, but it was one of the first appearances of a, of a major Hollywood actor making the leap to te- you know, television, primetime yes. television, mm-hmm. to actually sort of appear on it. I know since then you've actually got people whose film career seems to have taken a bit of a nosedive Sort yeah. of fronting up series, but I, mm-hmm. I, it, I think that was one of the certainly the earliest where that trend began. Yeah, you know? mm-hmm. it's a good episode that as well. It's two parter, isn't it? It's, um, yes. about yeah. somebody who loses loses is it the wife or the uh, child? I can't remember. Child. In a shoot, yes. Uh, uh, obviously, you know issues. I mean, this is the mm-hmm. other thing, isn't it? It's always a big issues program when when the, when the the A listers turn up. You know? Yeah, and I mean, you know, if if you look down the. Uh, the guest stars in the series, you know, mm. we'll probably will probably come to that at some mm. point. You know, it was obviously a program with a a bit of a kudos, and okay. you get some, you know, you get some big names prepared yes. to come and uh, come and do their stuff so for an episode. Developed uh, from the novel by David Simon, I believe. Yes, which is yeah, what, a, a year on the Killing Streets. Is that? Is that? Yes, that's it. So about Baltimore, all set in. Yes. So he kind of decided that he would uh, follow the police around for a year mm. as a journalist, 
you know, recording what they do, what mm. they did. And he then pitched the idea as a TV series. He tried to get Barry Levinson, great mm. film director, involved. Mm. And Barry Levinson said, no, oh, I don't think this is a film. Mm. I think this is a TV programme because it gives mm. you a longer time mileage. Yes. To, to develop it. Mm. And I think that is one of the, the real strengths of the programme mm. is that a lot of TV programmes you get a kind of there's a there's an arc to the to a story mm. which will be in certain things an episode yes or a series yes and you know you you feel you you follow the the arc of the story over the the course of a, a series and there's certain kind of breakpoints but it, it never felt like that it always mm. felt very like real life where yes. lots of things are happening and they're happening at same great, time, yeah. Yeah, yeah. At, you know, at different rates and at the yeah. same time. So there's a kind of thing. Real world get, sort of yeah. very similitude. <laughs> so, you know, right right at the uh, right in the first series, uh there's a child murdered mm. and uh the young bright young cop, uh Bayless gets mm. involved investigating it and he makes a hash mm. of his, his first case. Mm. And that is still, you know, the effects of that are still going on. Seven years later. Series down the line. Yeah. You know, he, he never recovers from that. Yeah. And it is, you know, that is based on something that is in the the original uh, the original novel. Okay. You know, there were bits of the uh, the novel. That's not a novel, it's a kind of factual. No, mm. Novel's a wrong word. For well, this, the, isn't, this isn't an adaptation years. of yes. an actual mm-hmm. novel, is it? This is yeah. taking some characters and building a series that's in the si- style si- of... Situations, yeah. yeah. Mm. And, you know, there were things that were used in that that became uh, part of The Wire as well. Mm. You know, was of course, yes, The Wire, because that's, that's David Simon yeah. again, isn't it? And it is. Yes. And it's, you know, it's a start of the kind of uh, the David Simon repertory company. Mm. People that you, uh, actors who you see, in Homicide, Life in the Street, mm. start coming up in uh, uh, other series that he goes right. on to make, uh, things like uh, The Wire, mm. uh, The Juice, mm. and uh, Tremé. Right. So where he's, you know, kind of got... Uh, so you've become uh, a bit of a, a... Have you seen most of his... I've, I've seen pretty much all of it. Yeah. Yeah, one or two have missed. And there's also The Corner as well, right. which is also based on one of his... Uh, is a uh, reportage books. I think that's probably the thing. is that the word we're looking for. Is it reportage? It's, it's as good a word as any. Well, I think it's. Uh, you, you know what I mean when yeah, I say yeah, that. Absolutely, but it's a very. Um, I feel going back to homicide because that sort of started. It's a very. Um, it's very cinematic for television, isn't it? And it's obviously very. I mean, I know a lot. A lot of American television shot on film, but it mm-hmm. it very much feels like cinema verity. It feels like documentary style. That they're using. Yeah, it's I mean, it's. It, I mean, it's filmed out on the streets of Baltimore. Mm. Baltimore is there as a background, mm. almost as like a character at times, mm. you know. Uh, so it's it's kind of out on the streets, and it has that real, uh, as you say, almost like a documentary yeah. feel to it, you know. So, uh, in terms of it's the things that people remember about homicide life on the street, you've got the box. Yeah. You've got mm-hmm. the red pen, black pen, whiteboard thing yep. on the wall. And mm-hmm. you've got some key characters. So shall we yeah. um, in, sort of think about 
from the first. Let's have a quick look at the old list. Yeah, shall okay. we? I got I got the episode. Uh, too. I got I've got my list of characters yeah. out here. Okay, well, and the, well, and if you've got, got your and, list, yeah, right. And the, the the ones there are some characters who were there at the beginning mm. and All lasted the way through. late late through to the end. Mm. And how can we not start with the wonderful John Munch? Ah, you want to go with Munch? I'm going to start with Munch. The, the, the slacker extraordinaire. <laughs> yeah, and that kind of dry humour he's got. Mm. So, such, such a good character that he, mm. he lives on to this day. He does, doesn't he? He's... In, in, in another series. You well, know. I mean, actually, I, I believe uh, there, there is uh, something about uh, John Munch as played by Richard Belzer, or Belzer. Uh, he is one of those characters that's been on... It, it's the record for the same character on the most different TV series in America because he he turned up on um, I think he turned up on various versions of Law and Order, but I think he's turned up on other shows. I think he's turned up, obviously uh, I think he turned up on the X Files or yeah. or something, <laughs> everything like that. They kept going back. <laughs> Basically, he got this part in whatever it was 1993, and he's been playing him ever since. <laughs> Black suit, thin tie, dark glasses, Richard Belzer. Yeah. There is a, and he, he is, yeah, he is, he is fantastic in that one. Yeah, uh, and ended up because uh, he actually did a few normal Law and Orders, but he became a regular on Law and Order Special Victims, didn't he? Which yeah, is right. now the longest running. I know he's not in it anymore, but that was now the yeah. longest running drama mm. series on American television, and I think it's, it's either in its twenty first or, or season, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, which, which actually eclipsed the number of years Law and Order itself was on. Right. But yeah. he obviously turned up on um, some of the, you know, like the other spin-offs as well, because you know, just one of those characters that would pop up. If yeah. in doubt, if in doubt, <laughs> put, put put John Munch in there. You know, it's, yeah. it's kind of like a lucky charm. It's like, um, who's the guy? Who's the? Um, oh, is it John Ratzenberger turning up in all the Pixar movies? Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of like this lucky lucky talisman. You, uh, yeah, slide in there. In there. The other thing about right. Munch is that. Um, he was never in the in the first at first he was always he was a bit of a slacker and nobody yeah. seemed to actually uh, trust him very much and, no. and for him to go on to be this iconic television <laughs> character you know it's, it's kind of amazing in and of itself. Yeah. You know? Right. Uh, the other the other ones who uh, lasted every single series. Mm. Uh, Lewis. Meldrick Lewis, played by ah, Clark yes. Johnson. Clark Johnson. Yes. Uh, now he is a bit of a. A, a sort of cornerstone of television these days as well. Yes, isn't he? yeah. he's another one who's part of the uh, the David Simon mm. uh, repertory company because mm. he cropped up in The Wire mm. as a as a journalist, as I remember. Mm. Uh, and I mean, I, I should say that you know when you look down the uh, the, the cast list there, mm. uh, not a lot of people who you would have known beforehand. No, well, this I think there was a, there was a general sense in casting that they didn't want recognized faces yeah. to a certain mm-hmm. extent or at least well recognized yeah. faces and Sorry. and i think they trolled the the new york acting for it's interesting yeah. that particularly the one i remember most is steve Crisetti as you know yes. uh, uh, john mm-hmm. polito who didn't yeah. stick around very long because no. everybody decided he was too funny looking for television according <laughs> to too, television executive too, 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 too ugly for television people, people don't want to look at you know uh, and he's had an astonishing career, and he's an astonishing yeah. actor. But but somehow didn't it didn't quite work for him, uh, Homicide. I mean, but uh, no. I but very yeah. iconic. I mean, very, it, it's it's a big 
big bald head if, if people um yeah and mustachioed i mean the over, you know over the kind of the run of the series the cast did get better looking <laughs> you <laughs> well, didn't that, notice because to be fair that it, happens with quite a lot of shows you know yeah you should get older and uglier but uh yeah because steve crosetti always went are also bolander played by ned Beatty. Mm. Who's another man who didn't quite see uh, the, no. uh, the again, run. but astonishing act. I mean, you know, you know, you know yeah. Beatty from mm-hmm. feature films and what have you. But uh, I mean, I mean, uh, I think I think we actually saw um, John Polito <laughs> in uh, turn up as a villain in something we watched only a few weeks ago. So he's, yeah. he's still mm-hmm. out there and he's still rattling along, you know. Yeah, but um, the, uh, the, yeah, the, the 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 other two who lasted the pace were uh, Giardello, mm. played by Yafet Koto. Mm. As the, the, uh, lieutenant. The, the lieutenant, mm. and uh, yeah, again, familiar from I suppose uh, Alien, isn't he? He's in Alien, and probably the thing that he's most recognised for, other than the Bond film. So yes. yeah, mm-hmm. in and terms of popular culture, I mean, I know he's, yeah. he's obviously got. Yeah, that. I mean, yeah, all these people have got fine careers, but you mm. know, it's like uh, there's only so much crossage, and yeah, just like kind of a fantastic performance right the way through. Mm. Uh, you know that kind of weary look as he's sat at his desk mm. and trying to trying to manage all these uh, disparate characters. Yes, and the other one who uh, is in every single season is Bayliss, played by Kim Kyle Sikor. Ah, yes. Uh, so he, you know, starts off as the uh, the bright young keen yes. cop and becomes a cynical uh, old hand. Cynical, yeah, <laughs> uh, and you know, in a certain way, it's a. Yeah. Through that uh, that initial mm. case that he works on that goes wrong. Mm. Well, again, it just shows generally in life how the small things that stick with you are the things that ultimately may indeed be the, your your unraveling. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I was thinking back to um, Yafet. Actually, it's a powerhouse performance throughout, isn't it? The yeah. um, Algia Dello. I believe that the 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 follow up movie, which I've never actually seen, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. uh, tends to involve. His character in an un- unfortunate way, in, in to a certain extent. But yeah, uh, it's uh, yeah. I know you've you've, not, you've never seen the, the the homicide the movie, but it is. It wasn't in the box set I bought, unfortunately. Yeah, um, I, I, I bought a I bought an expensive box set from America that I had to go and pay tax on because it was so <laughs> it was so expensive. Ah. Uh, so it, it turned out to be. Uh, you know, a bit more than I was planning for. Yeah. It was a birthday, birthday present for someone, so fair enough. And I did get to watch it, but the the movie works really well because mm. the movie pulls quite often in, they don't, don't they? When you yeah. do a, they do a sort of reunion or ten years later movie or something. Yeah. Quite often they're a little bit cheesy and a little bit not quite there, uh, but so it, it works it, very it, well it, as, it a, felt, as a movie. Yeah. It, it, it felt right, mm. and yeah, I will I will lend you the DVD sometime <laughs> as, as long as you can do region. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure we can find a way around that. Methods. Yes. So, that, I mean, that, I, I may be a bit technically backwards sometimes, but there are there are things I have access to. <laughs> Any codes you can put in. Something but like yeah, I mean, but but when you think of uh, homicide, I mean, the 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 main man, the guy who really did the breakout star mm. was uh, Frank Pembleton, Frank played by Pembleton. Andre Brower, I oh, yes. pronounce it. Ah, yes. Which is just uh, Pembleton uh, in the box. Interestingly Fact. enough, now had an incredible uh, career resurrection playing comedy in uh, <laughs> Brooklyn yeah. Nine-Nine, which uh-huh. is an astonishing yeah. performance. Mm. And actually, sometimes I have to remind myself that he <laughs> that he was Frank Pembleton once, because yeah. it, it, 
I, there are moments when I just can't make the connection. We, it's interesting. We were working our way through uh, a Law and Order season a couple of months ago. Yeah. And one of the crossover episodes happened, and it, Pembleton turned up on a street corner in a mm -hmm. in the old big hat, big Mac. Phone, yeah. You know, you've got the uh, payphone on the corner thing, and it, it my brain had to make a leap to actually <laughs> make the connection with Brooklyn Nine Nine, and he, yeah. and apparently he he thought he'd not done enough comedy, yeah, and so he, he, just, he was put up for this job, and and he's he's brilliant in Nine Nine, yeah. He's, 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 I mean, he's fa fantastic as Pemble, and indeed the kind of the yeah the the kind of the brilliance and the arrogance yes you know that really come across uh and it so is well. interesting that he was the person who became most associated with the big interview scene wasn't he the, yeah. in the mm. box pembleton in the box is basically <laughs> your quintessential <laughs> homicide on the street episode yeah. moment yeah mm -hmm. uh, and then uh, you know when he has he has a stroke doesn't he ah uh, yes yeah the oh the, you know he's a kind of wife the let's let's have a season end dramatic yeah. storyline that we'll probably try and forget about very quickly next season. <laughs> yeah, but he missed. He did. He wasn't in the final season. Though. He wasn't in season seven. Right. So, okay. Uh, he didn't quite last it. He, he no. did come back. Every, everyone came back for the movie. Yes. And I mean everyone, including uh, the uh, the deceased uh, Steve <laughs> Crosetti. <laughs> he, he come. He comes back as a ghost in a kind of. <laughs> Literally a ghost. Oops, sorry, that's a bit of a spoiler for you. Yeah. No, that's fine. But the, you know, he he had to be in it. You know. He, he well, there were. Uh, I mean, weirdly, uh, again, when when you look at the parallels with uh, NYPD Blue, they they did go through a, a a kind of. There must have been a phase where where the spirits of late characters, because <laughs> I think uh, Jimmy Smith pops up in, uh, to have a have a rant right. at Sipowitz in in one one sort of season yeah. ten episode mm -hmm. after he's been dead four seasons, so um, yeah. so I don't think I don't think it's uh, it's unprecedented, shall we no. say? Mm -hmm. So all, also in the cast, they don't uh, put a sheet over the red though. <laughs> no, it's not. I mean, I'm sorry, you're still too ugly for television. <laughs> put the sheet over. Your... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just, just stand behind this uh, this piece of glass. It'll uh, uh. make your uh, fuzzy your face. So we'll take, put, put, take the shine off your head. <laughs> yeah. So we also had uh, Daniel Baldwin. Oh as, yes. Uh, Bull Felton. Right. Uh, in the kind of the first uh, three series, mm. uh, the fantastic uh, Melissa Leo yes. as uh, Howard. Uh, really good, kind of. Uh, actress. Yes, and, and know, also a pro proper um, uh, role for a woman in a series. Yes. I mean, there's, there's mm -hmm. no um, there's no sort of yeah. making a... I mean, tell me right, I mean, they actually seem to make a feature of her not being glamorous, but just being somebody doing a damn good yeah. job, uh -huh. you know, and that, yeah. I think that's a, that's a thing I'm, in I'm, itself, really. But what, what I quite like is when they bring in uh, Shepard in the, uh, the final series played mm. by Michael McKayley, or however you pronounce her name, okay. uh, and she is very glamorous, supposedly mm. an ex-model. Right. But they 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 kind of make reference to that how attractive she is now. Yeah. She then has trouble being accepted. Like, can she do the job mm. because she is, uh, uh, you know, this kind of glamour. Do you know if it managed to keep pretty much the same producers throughout? Because that's usually yeah. a slight. Problem. I know that mm -hmm. um, Botchko 
basically got fired from uh, Hill Street Blues around right. four years in. Yeah. And so you get other teams in and the other teams start to introduce their own characters who they are more yeah. interested mm -hmm. in writing for. Yeah. But they've managed to sort mm -hmm. of get their characters onto the screen, sort of piggybacked onto the, yeah. the main mm -hmm. programme. And, and suddenly, again, I don't know, there does seem to be a sudden need to bring in more glamour at about the sort yeah. of four or five year mark <laughs> with these shows. It's almost like, you know, this show is, is obviously on its usual downward trajectory yeah. after a yeah. few years on television. People are fed mm -hmm. up of it or whatever, you know, and yet somehow, I mean, even the later seasons of Law and Order, you know, you've got the sort of familiar faces get replaced by by bright young things, you know, but yeah. they're, they're bright young mm -hmm. things who've obviously been, like you say, spent three years on the catwalk or whatever. <laughs> you know? I don't yeah. know, it's, it's a tendency, and it, I don't think it necessarily does these shows any favours. No. I mean, the exception to the rule there, of course, being Dennis France, uh, who comes in for the last two years of uh, Hill Street and is wonderful yeah. as uh, mm -hmm. Bunts, gets a spin-off which fails dreadfully, Beverly yeah. Hills Bunts, <laughs> but then it's remembered enough or respected enough so when NYPD Blue comes along however many years later it was becomes again gets shot in the first episode and ends up being <laughs> the only character who's there all the way through you know, for 12 seasons you know yeah so uh, the, the other uh, characters we're in with uh, Megan Rossert played by right. Isabella Hoffman yes uh, Kellerman played by Reed Diamond so they were both, uh... and again, actors who turn up in all sorts of things again. Yeah. But, but mm -hmm. they, you always think, oh, that's the guy, or that's the woman from yeah. from Homicide: Life on the Street. Yeah. I have this vague feeling that the the directing team were quite iconic as well. But I'm trying to think off the top of my head who was the because there, weren't there some incredible uh, American film directors who worked on the show? Um... Or am I remembering that wrong? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Oh, okay, fair I've enough. Not, not, not got my list of directors. No, it's all right. It's fine. It's <laughs> yep. fine. It's, uh, we can we can skip that. Yeah. It's, it's, I just right. had this vague yeah. feeling that mm -hmm. that there was there were some people like um, Soderbergh, right, and and what have okay. you, who sort of got involved, you know, in the same way that um, ER got Quentin Tarantino. Yeah. You know, again, it mm -hmm. became a calling card to do a, a yeah. TV series. Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah. of that caliber or profile because yeah. it, they are very mm. um they're very powerful shows and if they are high profile enough and yeah, I say this this run for seven years so it wasn't yeah. it wasn't ignored by any show it's like I know sometimes it did feel like the uh, the uh, the cousin or, or the unloved yeah. cousin mm. of the other shows <laughs> but, but it, it was there yeah. and it was very successful mm. yeah we also had uh Assistant State's Attorney Ed Danvers, ah. played by Zelkio Ivanek, who was in everything, isn't he? Yeah, he was good. And Juliana Cox, played by Michelle Forbes, as your Chief Medical Examiner. Mm -hmm. It's almost like I think it's a bit of a uh, a TV and cinema trope that your uh, your Chief Medical Examiners. Uh, get to be extra quirky. <laughs> it's something about you. Want, you want somebody to uh, really kind of. Uh... Well, it's interesting again when you look at because uh, Leslie Hendricks turned up as the regular uh, examiner on uh, Law and Order for Donkey and all the spin-offs. She became yeah. the uh, the Emmy of choice, really. 
Although yeah. in the early mm-hmm. seasons, it's it's anybody who turns up with a, with an American equity card, it seems, yeah. <laughs> can can be. The, it's a bit like uh, actually when you think back to Morse over here. You know, you get Max, but Max is mm. only in the first two seasons. Uh, yeah. He's an old friend of Morse, and obviously when when they came back to do Endeavor, he's been in it sort yeah. of since the start, mm-hmm. and then got replaced by Grayling Russell, who was uh, Amanda Hillwood. But then after yeah. that, it was just. It was kind of not seen as a key part, you know. Of course, that takes us all the way back to dear old Quincy M.E. Yes. And it's issue of the week. And I'm going to get to the bottom of it. I'm going to get to the bottom of it now. I'm going to shout in your face until you do something about it. Uh, Ah, Sorry. So we also had that towards the end, there was kind of like uh, the the new detectives coming in. Yes. uh, I mentioned Rennie Shepard, yes. we also had Terry Stivers, mm-hmm. and Laura Ballard, and Paul Falzoni, John, John Cedar, mm. who is another member of the uh, the David Simon Repertory Company. He had a fairly large part in Treme, ah, in Treme okay. came around, as did uh, Melissa Leo, she was also in Treme. Fair enough. But I think we'll, we've got to mention the uh, the ultimate man. Of the uh, the David Simon Repertory Company, okay, who is Clark Peters? Clark, right? Clark, mm-hmm. by my reckoning, appears in Homicide. Mm-hmm. He was in the Corner. Mm-hmm. He was in The Wire. Mm-hmm. He was in Trimmy. Mm-hmm. and he's also in The Juice. Well, there you go, five for five. Was it six? Five for, six? for five, <laughs> as well as as well as writing a fantastic musical himself called. Five Guys Named Mo, wow. with the music of uh, the very, very wonderful Louis Jordan. He's also actually it. become the, uh, over the years, he seems to become the BBC guest star of choice, doesn't he, really? Yeah, he's, uh, yeah, he's, he, he's just a lovely guy to watch, mm. you know. Yeah. Uh, uh, but yeah, he gets he gets a kind of a, uh, an episode or two in uh, uh, Homicide, Life on the Street, just mm-hmm. as a kind of a guy who gets arrested. He's not a kind of major character yeah, like right. in a lot of these other ones. But uh, good old Clark Peters. Yeah. There we go. And yeah, I was I mentioned about the uh, the kind of the special guest stars or the notable guest appearances. Robin Williams is obviously the uh, uh, the most obvious one. Yes. But I can also throw a few names at you. Steve Buscemi. Oh crikey! Yes. Joan Chen. Blimey. James Earl Jones. James Earl Jones. Chris Rock. Right. Jerry Stiller. Lily Tomlin. And before I became familiar with all this stuff in uh, Baltimore, the most famous resident of Baltimore I knew about was uh, film director John Waters. Ah, okay. Who appears not once, but twice. (laughs) (laughs) He's got two completely different... uh, Oh, the different roles, right. Guest roles. But yeah, and it is, obviously, as you can imagine, as a kind of... uh, as a major player in yeah. uh, Baltimore, he is a uh, a big uh, a big fan of it. He's yeah, got a lot of. Uh, I, I think that's the interesting, uh, the other interesting aspect of Homicide. Really, Homicide: Life on the Street is very diverse. Really, very very diverse uh, for yeah. for that kind of show. In many mm-hmm. ways, it's uh, it really is sort of going across the board in terms of. Uh, your representation and what have you. Do you think yeah. it good gives a good impression of Baltimore generally? Because I know I know that was it is it Bodymore they refer to it in the in the <laughs> in the uh, in the wire. 
Yeah. I mean, obviously, yeah. I think The Wire takes a, a, a definite darker turn yes. in terms of how it portrays Baltimore. I mean, uh, have you you, you are, have you actually been to Baltimore? I've not been. I've been close to Baltimore. Would you go having seen these shows? <laughs> yeah, I, I think I would. Mm. I think it's a kind of uh, it's a an interesting play, and it you know. Uh, with the love of the John Waters movies that yes. I have, then uh, how, how can you not love? Mm. I mean, we're uh, a coffin bit from Washington, aren't we, in Baltimore? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I flew into Washington, you know, sometime in the nineties, and mm. the the airport is kind of halfway between Washington mm. and Baltimore. Mm. So we kind of uh, jumped on the uh, jumped on the first taxi and headed towards uh, Washington rather than uh, than Baltimore. So do you think? But yeah, it's it's a kind of it's a it's, a, it's an honest, and I, I you know I don't think uh, compared to TV series that are coming now, mm -hmm. uh, I do think. Uh, you feel it's dated a bit. I think it's probably dated a bit, mm. and certain things that you know were probably quite shocking at the time. Mm. Certain doors that walls that were knocked down by homicide, mm. you know, are now. Clear, you can do yes. that, no problem. Mm. Uh, it kind of you know, the, it led the way, kind of thing. In that yeah, sense. and and the idea that uh, uh, the cops aren't all good, mm. and they do have their dark side as well. Yeah. And, uh, I uh, seem the, the, the thing I keep. I've been trying to think about last time I, I watched it, and I I seem to remember that, that, that a few of them chipping in and buying a bar. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know why. I just feel that was a thread at some point. Yeah. Like yeah. anybody who chips in and buys a bar is never going to make a turn of profit. <laughs> I just seem to remember it was a massive disaster, but I can't. I can't, yeah. can't remember how it turned out. Now it's like I say, yeah, it's been a while since I actually it. sat and watched it. Yeah, I mean the the the, the long kind of story. Well, one of the long story arcs I remember is the Luther Mahoney one. Mm. Uh, you know the kind of uh, the Uber villain who gets uh, you know they're chasing after for a long time, mm. and then there's a shooting involving him and. Uh, things start going wrong for various mm. policemen after that, and it's you know that's a it was a really good strong storyline yeah. that, that kept you absolutely uh, gripped, and you know didn't didn't fit that kind of pattern of like you know now we've got to the end of yeah. that, and that's kind of well, that's thrown out the way, and we'll take on something else. You know, it kind of the the ripples of that yeah. were carrying on right to the... Uh, it is true. Yeah, if, if you actually um, you start to sort of peel back the layers and go back further in time, uh, if you think about 70s cop shows generally, things like The Rockford Files, things like um, Starsky and Hutch, they didn't have ongoing storylines as a rule. No. They might, no. might occasionally refer back to that one where mm -hmm. his dad turned up or something. Yeah. But mm -hmm. even that was rare. They didn't seem yeah. to sort of seed these things. And I think there was a there was a fear to a certain extent in a lot of television that people wouldn't remember or yeah. you can't refer mm -hmm. back to something that happened three years ago because mm -hmm. it happened to this guy or that guy and, yeah. and people won't follow it and you and you when you're going to syndicate a show you want to be able to show him in any order and all this yeah there was a lot of that thinking going on mm -hmm. and then this sort of possibly around about the time of Botchko was doing hill street but then you got things like mm -hmm. uh, la law la law did the uh, oh gosh what was it earl williams storyline in one season which was about yeah. somebody who was going to be executed and all this kind of thing and and whether or not he was actually guilty and their lawyer got involved and very uh, very interesting because that led to things like murder one which would then have a whole season telling one story 
if you see what I mean. Yeah. Or at least attempted that. So you had that sort of sense that things were changing in terms of mission creep, in terms of you were able to refer back to episodes from another season even you know yeah i mean by this stage 90s i suppose the x-files was basically boggling minds <laughs> by trying to remind them that some sort of conspiracy that someone had mentioned in one episode in season one eight years later that you're supposed to remember everything about uh, so yeah. by this stage there was a, a kind of assumption that the the audience was clever enough to either rewatch. I mean because i think home video made a heck of a difference actually once yeah. people were able to go back and rewatch stuff you could assume they would remember stuff mm -hmm. and again uh homicide life on the street is right in the middle of that sort of these these tiny tiny stories that actually reward regular viewers i think that's the, yeah. that's the beauty of mm -hmm. it. they reward the regular viewer because most casual viewers they're not making a massive feature of oh this is the episode in which generally no but but mm -hmm. if you remember something that that happened on that to that person three years ago yeah. Mm -hmm. and you pick up on it you can feel quite clever sitting at home watching it going ha ha i'm ahead of <laughs> yeah. the game here mm -hmm. and oh that's nice i remember that and i think it does bring a sense of community to a show actually yeah you know it, because mm -hmm. you do get with a lot of shows you will get a core audience who love it and love everything yeah. about it and know mm -hmm. everything about it and then you get the more general viewing public who like it and will watch it and then you get the sort of outer circle who occasionally watch it but they're never really yeah. that bothered mm -hmm. and the and i think the the beauty of it is if you can get the audience, not necessarily the core viewers, but the general viewers to be that interested in it, yeah. you've actually got a hit mm -hmm. on your hands, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Do you have any specific episodes that stand out for you? Uh, I think the uh, the guy who fell under the train or was pushed under the train okay. is one that really... Resonates. Yeah. yeah, sticks in my mind just mm -hmm. how you know, gripping that one was. Yes. I think that was probably a kind of... can't remember the name of the episode. No. can't remember the name of the star, but it's just like, uh, you know, it was such a kind of... Yeah. You know, was it an accident? Did somebody actually do this? And mm -hmm. the way it kind of it transpires. And yeah, and the, the Robin Williams one is, is kind of powerful one as well. That's possibly know, one of the more seen as well, certainly over here. Uh, yeah. because it was really heavily pushed on Channel 4 at the time, I remember that. Yeah. And uh, possibly people who'd never thought of watching that. Because it's not, say it's not right, right slap bang at the, the beginning, is it? But it's it, it we really sort of, they pushed it on this guest star and you will see yeah. it. And it, is mm -hmm. great. And, it, and it was, it was a great, great show. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and, and, and I think possibly, like to certainly help up its profile here. It's interesting how yeah. certain things do stick with you. I mean, like I say, the... Uh, Pendleton in the box thing but yeah. uh, I have an episode of Hill Street that I remember very vividly and it's uh, it's basically uh, Dennis Francis character so it's a late series one yeah uh, being held hostage you know but I remember that one vividly when a lot of it sort of you know sort of is it when you watch a lot of a series it can kind of wash over you sometimes and individual moments yeah. can sort of blur a bit but that one stood mm -hmm. out. And when I did my epic rewatch of Hill Street last year, it, yeah. I came to that episode, which had been so iconic in my memory. And I hadn't, I was halfway through it before I realized that's the episode it was. It actually, <laughs> it felt bigger in my head. It felt like it went on like for three yeah. weeks, three or four seasons, you know, not, not three or four seasons, but three or four episodes. And it really mm -hmm. wasn't, it was half an episode. 
but it, yeah. it, it's sort of lodged so strongly in my mind. Yeah, you know, that has become dominates other things yeah. that were. I mean, I still bigger. use. Uh, to be fair, I mean, you know, the whole red ball thing still crops up occasionally from time yeah. to time in conversation because <laughs> I am that dull. I'm sorry, but uh, that whole thing about. You know, the, uh, we used to have a whiteboard in in the, uh, the last job I had, and I, I did yeah. sometimes have this thing about having sort of changing the red text to black text, or, <laughs> or changing the black text to red text. Oh, there's a, yeah, there's a, there's a red ball, there's a stone cold who done it. Yeah, <laughs> and I that other one from the yeah, yeah, good stuff. So you're you're a bit of a fan. How, yes. How much of it have you rewatched recently? Uh, not a lot. No, no. I, I think I've that, that expensive box set sits on the shelf. Ah, sorry, I have, yeah, I have, been, I have it, shelves it's been full watched. of expensive yeah, box sets. I, I've watched a couple of. Well, yeah, I, I initially I initially started buying the uh, the kind of box sets because they were oh the individual the series, the individual series, because yeah. mm. uh, they were they were really you know a bargain to be had even mm. you know fifteen twenty years ago they were a bargain, mm. but then suddenly they released that. Uh, all the stuff from the states and the mm. uh, the lure the lure of the uh, you needed more of it the the, the kind of homicide the movie. There's a whole hour we uh, could discuss about the lore of, of DVD buying or in the days that little, that little extra thing oh, just, gosh, to, yeah. uh, just to drag an, an, you in. another edition. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and indeed the fact that once you've got it, sometimes it stays in the cellophane for six months, <laughs> which is also a problem I have. Yeah. Anyway, you know. But yeah, we we we, we did sit there and uh, we watched the uh, the series. Yeah, beginning to end, mm-hmm. on yeah, thoroughly. Yeah. Are you thoroughly thinking of it. giving it another run through? Yeah, now you've been know. thinking about it. Or? Yeah, I don't know. It's uh, it's my better half is the uh, mm. is the real fan of it. It's, it's her box set. Yeah. So I think we we do I, find it would, it would it would it would have to be a kind of a joint uh, yeah. joint enterprise. It is interesting because there's always so much new to watch, isn't there? I mean, that's the yeah. thing. I mean, mm-hmm. I occasionally get uh, an inkling to sit down and do the west wing again yeah love the west wing bought the seven sets sort of one after mm-hmm. the other so they're still in seven separate boxes now you can buy it in a lovely tidy small box <laughs> which i didn't uh, uh get again that's the thing isn't it you watch it once and you know you're only gonna watch it once really a lot of these series i have other uh, people have guested on the show and they they'll yeah. order a series from australia of like 200 episodes of whatever series it is and you do i actually find myself asking will i watch any of this stuff twice and then i think i just need to be able to access it but yeah you know Mm -hmm. it's and you know it's there if you see what i mean yes and if if one day i choose i want to sit down and watch all of homicide i want to be able to go and do that you know because i find that with uh, streaming it's not always the case that the thing that's there this week will be there the following week you know and that and and the fact is that if you've got a hard copy somehow, <laughs> yeah, I know that people nowadays seem to think that collecting on DVD it's old hat or Blu-ray, yeah. it's old mm-hmm. hat. And, but I actually think that there is a certain amount of knowing that you can makes you feel if if you have that sort of yeah, mm-hmm. if you have that desire to watch a thing, and that I think yeah. is what makes the difference between not buying and buying really. Yeah, I've had a interesting conversation with uh, my new work colleagues mm. who are. You know, twenty to thirty years younger, younger than yes. me, and you know they they say, "Oh, you can you can watch anything online." Mm. And I go, "Well, you can at the moment. Mm. You can watch certain things online, mm. but they've never kind of gone through that thing of uh, it's there, it's not there." Mm. 
which uh, well finding you know, uh, I think certainly with things like uh, if you if you're if you like a particularly obscure kind of movie you know yeah. if you even though even if to a certain extent although that seems to be changing with Netflix uh, if you are a fan of uh, shall we say overseas drama yeah uh, foreign language drama it actually can become more and more tricky to track this stuff down yeah uh, or even to be honest cinema made before 1940 isn't widely available on streaming no. services mm -hmm. i mean it is you know you can yeah. if you know where to look kind of thing but but it's it can be difficult but the other thing is that when when there is a i mean we talk about old television a lot on this show but yeah. actually if i if i want to point somebody at say a particular series from the 60s yeah. finding like say callan you know I can I can tell you where to yeah. buy a set of it, but yeah. actually finding it on a streaming service is more difficult. Mm -hmm. I mean, some stuff pops yeah. up on YouTube, but it does tend to get policed quite quickly, and yeah. you know, rightly so, copyright and all that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, it's it's a bit tricky sometimes when it comes to the stuff that's not mainstream. I mean, I'm amazed there are yeah. there are these uh, DVD companies uh, still who are releasing stuff that you think would never get released in a million years. I mean, it's yeah. just, uh, you know, I mean, funnily enough, when you were last on, you were talking about uh, that Scylla yes. mm -hmm. program. And there has been a tendency, uh, thanks to uh, channels like TPTV and what have you, uh, and also things like uh, Companies Night Network, are just starting to uh, do streaming services of things like Sunday Night at the London Palladium, in, in yeah. as part of an entertainment mm -hmm. night they're actually doing abc nights right uh, yeah. quite a few people i know are, are big fans of those I mean, you can either buy mm -hmm. them to stream uh, across an evening or they yeah. uh, they do seem to have done uh, dvd releases afterwards and yeah. that's the stuff on that is stuff that you can't imagine would ever have got a dvd release under any no. other circumstances shows like yeah. uh, dial 999 and, and no hiding place sort of odd mm -hmm. episodes to now <laughs> you actually want to track those down it's almost impossible and yet there yeah. they are getting a, a wider audience so i think the value of the collector or being a collector you know there, there was an yeah. interview uh, with a i can't remember who it was but it was a, a film reviewer and he was saying that i think it might even have been kim newman he just if you want to watch x y or z horror film to be able mm. to go along into your living room and grab it off a shelf is a lot easier than spending two days trying to <laughs> trawl through uh, the internet to see if there's any possible copies yeah. available of it. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, even I mean, I know we've both uh, watched sort of Kinski, um, you know, yeah. but the Kinski stuff can be a little bit difficult to track down uh, yeah. if, if you if mm -hmm. you know where to look. How, how is a Kinski viewing marathon going? Uh, it it's stalled a bit because other stuff came along. Uh, yeah, but uh, yeah, it, it's it's still there on the back burner. You know, it's, uh... Yep. So very good. So, homicide, good show. Yep, I'd thoroughly recommend it. Mm -hmm. uh, it's you know it's kind of very very rewarding. One hundred and twenty-two episodes, say about forty-five minutes an episode, wow. ninety hours. That's ninety hours of your life that's worth worth spending. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I would I would recommend it and. Uh, it's it's pretty consistent, I would say. You know, there's no there's no kind of real drop off. No. You know, there's not a kind of you know when are they going to cancel this going yeah, through the motions. Right. You know, there's there's still good stuff there at the end. But yeah. 
Do you, do you think uh, it does tail off generally like most series? I mean, there are. I mean, it's, it's interesting that again, a show that can be edgy at the start can feel quite cozy at the end. And I, and I, yes. I wonder whether yeah. that, that does it. Does it feel like that? Yeah. I mean, I suppose I, I there think... is a, a sense that. Uh, like I say, Richard Belzer's character became has become the cosy cornerstone of the cop drama in America generally. <laughs> but uh... yeah, it's uh, yeah. Uh, well, it's it's that kind of the ability to carry on shocking and surprising people. Yeah, I wonder if you kind of if you started off watching the later episodes, if you would just go yeah there. Yeah, it's just another you know, cop show. Good... Interesting. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. I, there is a. Uh, a phrase that goes around occasionally about Mash. You know that it, it if. BJ's got a moustache, don't watch it. <laughs> <laughs> now, I, I, I don't agree with that at all. No. I think the late seasons mm. of MASH are, are excellent, but um, yeah. I know that's one of the things people have, and I just wondered whether <laughs> it's, does it does your enjoyment of homicide life on the street <laughs> depend on the shade of <laughs> Richard Belser's hair? <laughs> yeah. How grey he is this week. <laughs> How dark are those glasses? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, I don't know. Very good. Excellent. Well, thank you for your time today, Sandy. Right. You're very welcome, and, Martin. And uh, I look forward to Let's see if we can think of something else to talk about another week. I'm sure we will. There's a whole, whole world of television there is out indeed. there. indeed. And it's, most of it's on your shelves behind you. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you take care and I'll speak to you soon. Okay. Cheers, Martin. Catch you soon, mate. Ta-da. Sadly, the week after we recorded our, I think, suitably respectful conversation about the series Homicide Life on the Street, because it is such an impressive series, Sandy got in touch to tell me that the death at the age of 81 had been announced of Yafet Kotto, the imposing and brilliant actor who played the iconic Lieutenant Al Giardello in all seven series, as well as the TV movie that followed a year after the show concluded. A performance which was definitely a high point of a long, illustrious, well-regarded and often groundbreaking acting career, and after which he largely, but not completely, retired from acting. Yafet Kotto, it must be said, was very much the heart of the series, and so identified with the part he played that he also wrote several scripts for the series, including Narcissus and Secrets in the fifth and sixth seasons. And, with the character of Lieutenant Algiadello, created one of the more iconic television characters of its time. And now this, a little something I'm calling Blu-ray Blues. Because Sandy and I touched briefly in our conversation there upon the topic of collecting physical media, I thought I'd share a recent story about the convoluted hoops some of us go through in order to add brand new shiny discs to our collections. In the great scheme of things, of course, this would very probably go down as one of those first world problems, or as a devastatingly trivial example of privilege, when so many in the world have genuinely awful problems to deal with, but it does at least serve to demonstrate the kind of angst that goes through the mind of a collector when a new release is announced and you know that there have been problems for people getting hold of copies in the past. I am referring to a thing we shall hereafter refer to only as Series 8. And after a lapse in that particular collection, after the first seven releases, not least because of a global pandemic putting the kibosh on all sorts of productions for a while, after a certain amount of fear that I might miss the announcements of the next release when it came, I was more than happy to spot it on the very day it was announced and get my order in straight away and without any further thought. 
Why, you might very well ask, was that so important to you? Why exactly were you constantly checking the feeds on Twitworld for weeks leading up to the announcement of a blooming Blu-ray set? Aren't such things widely available, and to the candy buyer, available in the sales and bargain bins a few months later anyway? Ah, well, you see, the thing about Series 8 is that the producers of these much-coveted items have been playing a rather shrewd and clever marketing game, or a bloody annoying one if you take a different point of view, because they've made this range a limited edition one without ever guaranteeing that standard editions will actually come along eventually, even though we all know that they most probably will in time. Perhaps so that they can ensure that they won't have warehouses full of stock, but mostly it seems to create a desperate demand for their product from keen collectors who are desperate not to find that they have a gap in their shells as if a front tooth has been punched out during a prize fight because avid collectors really do worry about such things. And with the gougers, multiple purchasers and scalpers buying up whole swathes of copies at around the time of release, if not before, copies of Series 8 can become very hard to find indeed, even before they've come out, and prices in the second-hand market for something not completely dissimilar to releases already available on DVD, but different enough to scratch the itch of a particular kind of collector or fan, have been getting to the point of becoming utterly ridiculous, or to be honest, downright unscrupulous. Anyway, my order was put in, surely I could relax and simply wait. But no, you see, because this is where the anxiety really began, because tiny little news stories started to trickle out, percolate and permeate down to me about things like Brexit and our relationship with Europe, and I started thinking about all of those tricky little things like that .eu that featured on the end of some of the websites I order my bits and pieces from, and whether, once the year turned and all those bongs of so-called freedom had bonged, whether imports and exports and all of that sort of thing would actually happen when they were supposed to, and whether my lovely, safe, secured little parcel would end up sitting in the back of a lorry ten miles long and ending up being burned on some modern-day bonfire of the vanities as the social order crumbled. I know, I know. Get a sense of perspective, will you, laddie? But then there were all those other tales of postal workers knocking on doors and demanding tax payments and taking away those oh-so-precious bargain-filled parcels to be burned on other bonfires and my mind, secure though it was in the knowledge that everything would probably turn out fine, got slightly anxious over a seasonal bottle of wine and, angst-ridden as I became, a second order was made with a different company in order to ensure that my bets were being hedged. Phew, and if I ended up with two copies, even though in my position I really, really couldn't afford or justify getting two copies, could I? Well, I could always try to sell it on to someone who hadn't been as fortunate as I had been, and I absolutely, definitely, positively would not be asking for any more than I had paid for it myself. Because, contrary to popular belief in some quarters, I am actually not a git. Anyway, this is where things started to get really tricky, not least because I knew that at some point down the line I might end up playing order roulette if one of them should happen to arrive and the other one was lurking in the waiting for dispatch mode and I would have to be a little bit quick on the old cancel trigger if I didn't want to end up lumbered with two of them. And then, of course, it transpired that the delivery date for one of them would coincide with a weekend we'd planned to go away for, although that, with lockdowns and everything, was looking increasingly unlikely and I'd recently seen notices on doors complaining about a spate of parcel thefts in the area. And then, to add anxiety upon anxiety, the backup company I'd ordered from in that red wine fueled mist of uncertainty suddenly seemed to be on the brink of bankruptcy or takeover or something equally alarming, and because I really, really didn't want to run the risk of ordering up a third copy, I kind of decided that bankruptcy would probably mean that they wouldn't be sending me my copy anyway, so I sort of forgot about it for a while. 
Fast forward a few weeks until the scheduled release date was a little more imminent and I suddenly got an email out of the blue from the owners of that soon to be taken over company saying that they would actually be fulfilling orders up to a particular date and that all would be well regarding my particular order and of course they would be continuing under new ownership if I wanted to place any future orders with them. I began to suspect that the collectors of this particular collection are a very fretful and email sending kind of bunch and this was their way of saving themselves a fair old amount of administration as the release date loomed ever larger in people's anxiety bubbles. Anyway the upshot of the story is that without any fuss or bother at all my copy arrived slightly ahead of schedule an entire week before we would have been away if we'd been able and early enough that I could leap at the keyboard and head that duplicate order off at the pass and cancel the order before my credit card got charged my order went into that strange limbo known as ready for dispatch you may no longer cancel your order at this time and I would have to deal with the slightly tricky matter of disposing of the duplicate explaining yet another mysterious parcel coming to the door and maybe having to present myself at some post office or other to get the thing sent to some complete stranger who might very well turn out but probably wouldn't to be one of those people who makes your life a living hell when and if it went astray and the following week did feature tales of people having orders cancelled or left in the rain for days to go soggy and, as is often the case with Series 8, slight errors in packaging to add to the anxieties of people who really, really do get upset by that sort of thing. There were also strange tales of the company with whom I placed my first order taking ever such a very long time to actually send out the copies to the people who chose to use them to buy from, leading to anything up to a week of extra anxiety to wait through for just the sort of folk who don't need it. So why am I telling you this? After all, this is very possibly the very epitome of first world problems, but nevertheless just the sort of problems that actually do cause anxieties to exactly the kind of people most likely to feel anxious about precisely this kind of thing. Well, I'm not entirely sure really, other than to vent about certain matters in the world politic that have brought us to this state of affairs with exports and buying and selling, and perhaps to complain about certain opportunists who go about buying up dozens of a limited edition thing in order to fleece genuine fans by asking ridiculous prices. But also to vent, in an understated way, my disquiet at the whole notion of the limited collector's edition culture and what it leads to, not least because having something available for a very limited time does mean that certain people, fans if you like, but certainly the people most likely to really, really want such a thing, feel obliged to pay up at a time that may not be convenient to do so for whatever reason, but are also left at the mercy of fleecers and scalpers because of the forces of supply and demand. And yes, you could argue that this is the way of things in a capitalist culture, but Limited availability does close off options for anyone coming late to the show and wondering what it's all about. After all, despite many years of interest in telly, even I can sometimes discover a show that I've never even heard of, wonder what it's all about and find that its physical media release has already been deleted from the catalogues and the only way to get hold of a copy is by paying through the nose for a second-hand copy or just being incredibly lucky. Yes, that bloke who picked up Star Cops for a fiver at a car boot sale and bragged about it online, I'm looking at you. And finally... Just to let you know that you are not alone, there are many of us who are collectors out there and we do often share and feel your pain. Collecting archive television can be a lonely and difficult road to walk from time to time, but here at Vision on Sound we think that it's worth the journey and we hope that you do too. Anyway, once again, we've run out of time here on Vision on Sound. My thanks to Sandy, of course, for taking the time out of his busy schedule to meander through his memories of homicide life on the street. And as ever, my thanks to everyone here at Fab Radio International and, of course, to you for listening, wherever you may be. I hope you'll come back for another Vision on Sound very soon. So, for now, goodbye and take care. <laughs>